Welcome into Lockdown Blackhawks for Friday, May 8th, 2020. My name is Jay Zawoski. This episode of Lockdown Blackhawks is brought to you by Built Bar. Had the peanut butter chocolate this morning. Ooh, so good. And remember, with promo code Locked On, you get $10 off your first box of Built Bars at BuiltBar.com. Want to tell you, next episode of Lockdown Blackhawks will be Talk Back Tuesday, so get those questions in. LockdownBlackhawks at gmail.com. The voicemail, 708-653-0572. Twitter is at LO underscore Blackhawks. My guest here on Lockdown Blackhawks is Charlie Romeliotis from NBC Sports Chicago. He covers the Blackhawks for them. Charlie, thanks for jumping on. I know you've got a tea time today to get you, to, get to, so I will not keep you too long. Yes, uh, I'm very worried that something is going to go down between now and then, so I'm I'm uh, crossing my fingers. I felt like it was bad karma that I even considered booking a tea time for today, so uh, hopefully... Hopefully uh, things go smoothly. Well, at some point you've got to, you know, you because you're right. I feel that way all the time. Like, all right, I'm about to go into a concert. Something's definitely going to happen. And that happened to me right before the trade deadline in 2016. I'm like, all right, I got this. I went to see Nico Case and I said, something's going to happen tonight. And sure enough, it was the night they traded for Andrew Ladd. So <laughs> as that happened, I had to walk out of the concert. It was just the opening band, thankfully. Like go on the air, report the news, all this stuff. And then just go in and enjoy the rest of the night. It's some. I've gotten to the point though now in my career where I'm like, you know what? It's my job. I don't have to be the first one all the time. People can wait 45 minutes to hear my thoughts. They're not going to die without them. I finally gotten like to the piece of that. Like, all right, I, it's not this. My life does not revolve around this job anymore. Yeah. Thankfully, it it's so challenging too because. You would rather something breaks when you're actually doing something busy, like, hey, I'm at a family party or whatever, and I just can't step out. Or, but like when you're like golfing, it's like, well, um, I don't know if I if I should step out and get this or or whatnot. So something as as important as what's going on in Chicago right now is probably something I would have to step away. And it doesn't help though that over the weekend, um, we actually, my brother and two other friends, we drove to Indiana to go golfing because their restrictions are much. Uh, less strict than Chicago mm-hmm. and we got there on Saturday and apparently the governor had shut down the um, park district golf course on Friday night so it's like <laughs> we did everything right and it was like we were the only ones that weren't able to golf and there was like a herd of other Chicago people that traveled too so that I'm just scared too that somehow this is going to get screwed up too so hopefully hopefully it goes smoothly yeah, well, good luck with that. Hopefully, nothing happens within the next, uh, you know, seven eight hours. You can get your your round of golf in. Uh, by the yeah, way, I was some hockey. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I was thinking before we talked, and, and we're all sort of speculating about what's going to happen next with the Blackhawks. You know, is is the John McDonough thing a one off? Which I think in a lot of our minds doesn't make a lot of sense. If it is, why would you do just that? Um, but if they're truly talking about having an NHL draft in June, if they want to bring in a new GM. It better happen soon. Yeah, Jay. That is, it's such a, it's so crazy to think about the timeline because not only if they do a June draft, are they eyeing uh, a potential, like they're potentially eyeing the first week of June, whereas the regular draft would have been at the end of June. So it really speeds up your timeline. And, And not only the fact that you have to make a president hire, but also it's like, do you bring in, a hockey ops person first who then oversees or makes a decision on the GM and down, or do you have to speed up the process and say, okay, we might need to 
evaluate the GM first. And that, like the timeline on all this is all crazy. So it's going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds. Well, and one of the, and we just sort of alluded to it by not knowing anytime anything's going to happen. The Hawks keep stuff very close to the vest. The McDonough thing caught everybody off guard and no one even now. I mean, we've all speculated that, yeah, they're probably going to go with the hockey ops guy and with a GM under him, et cetera, et cetera. But we're all sort of assuming that we don't have any sort of uh, clarity on that at all. Like Rocky Wirtz hasn't spoken yet since firing John McDonough, which is strange. There's just been zero communication about this. There's been no explanation for it aside from the initial press release. And like you, I just, I kind of don't even know where to go with it. It's, I could start looking at people to be the next hockey ops person, but we don't even know if they're going to do that. It could just be John McDonough's fired and someone like Pete Hassan or whatever gets promoted. And that's the end of it. And yeah, you know, and that's, that's a possibility. I know, absolutely. And I think Pete Hassan, you mentioned it as a name I keep hearing as someone who may have as good a shot as any as as far as internal candidates go. But last week I had put together 10 potential candidates for the president position, but I had to separate the business side from the hockey side. Like I don't, you know, I, I laid out three potential external options in Bill Zito, Ron Hextall and Mike Gillis, but I don't see them getting the president job. I can see them going for a president of hockey ops job. So it's like I kind of had to make two lists and be, because we don't know what the structure is going to be whenever this hire does happen, what the front office, um, how, how the front office structure is going to look. Well, here, here's the thing I've been thinking about too is, you know, if McDonough's interference in the hockey side was as bad as I've been told it got over the last few years, maybe that was the part of the decision was like, wait a minute, he's getting too involved. Let's get him out of here. Let's get someone to replace him and just let Stan do his job. Maybe that's the plan. Maybe letting Bowman do his job unencumbered is the new plan. But again, until Rocky Wirtz says something, we don't know. And and look, how it was uh wasn't it April you guys talked to Rocky and he said, Yep, everybody's coming back. Everything's good. Maybe it was end of March, early April when he said that. So he said by name, McDonough and Bowman and Colleton. One of those three is gone, and the other two are in limbo right now. And I think those two would like to hear what the hell's going on. You know, everyone's just stuck <laughs> yeah. at home, not knowing what's what's going to happen next. Right. I, I think fans really, as much as fans really want to know what happened between Rocky's endorsement of the upper management group and from the time John was let go, uh, I I just don't think they're going to get that because I don't think there was a major fallout between then. Like. I know Chris Chelios was on ESPN 1000 the other day and, and he said um, uh, I, he had talked to John after the firing and John, even John was surprised. And so you're not surprised by that if something major happened in between that timeline. So, yeah, I just think it, it was cumulative and, and maybe this was the time to kind of reset because after this pandemic ends, I mean, it's going to be go, go, go. Like, so right now is the time to really get your ducks in a row. All week, I've been telling you guys about Built Bar. Charlie, if you're on the golf course, Built Bar is a great treat for you. Built Bars are tasty. It's a protein bar that tastes and feels like a candy bar. 16 amazing flavors. Eight are chocolate nut flavors. Eight are chocolate nut free flavors. They're all covered in 100% chocolate. They are soft and easy to chew. The texture is my favorite part of them. Just absolutely delicious. I was eating one for breakfast today. My daughter said, can I have a bite of that? I'm like, mm, I don't really want to give her any, but okay, I don't want to be a bad dad. She took a bite and loved it. 
So if a nine-year-old girl loves it whose life is candy and ice cream, you're going to love it too. And the best part about Built Bars is that they're healthy. You can lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. The peanut butter brownie, that's been my favorite so far. 20 grams of protein, 170 calories, 3 grams of sugar, 3 grams of net carbs. The mint brownie, also very good. 15 grams of protein, 110 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 5 grams of net carbs. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you'll get $10 off your first order. Use promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off at BuiltBar.com and they've got some new flavors coming out you're going to be very excited about. May 10th, the dark chocolate cookie dough, the mango and peach cobbler, and then you've also got the peanut butter banana, pineapple upside down cake, coconut pecan pie, and blueberry lemon coming later. But man, there's already delicious flavors out. Go to builtbar.com, use that promo code locked on to save $10 off your first order. My guest here on Lockdown Blackhawks is Charlie Romeliotis of NBC Sports Chicago. Uh, so if Stan Bowman doesn't go, if it is just John McDonough's replaced and that's the end of it, are Blackhawks fans going to accept this? You know, Rocky Wirtz has this unique pos- unique opportunity to just hit the reset button on the franchise right here, start fresh. And, you know, in, in the past I've questioned, like, uh, you know, how much is he willing to take? How much is he like Reinsdorf? And how much is he like Jerry Jones, right? We don't really know the answer to that, but he's fired Quenville. He's fired McDonough, which makes me think he's got very little patience. I just don't know if Stan Bowman stays, how the fans are going to react. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because when John McDonough did get let go, there wasn't some sense of relief from the fan base as if he was the problem. Like It still feels like the hockey side is needs a fresh set of eyes whether that is a new GM, whether that is maybe bringing someone in to oversee the hockey ops department and just have a, another, um, you know, like how Vegas structured theirs where they they bumped up George McPhee, McPhee to the president of hockey ops and, and had Kelly McCrimmon move into the GM spot. So they do have that continuity. So I'm not sure. Like, I feel like obviously the fan base is really um, – has been really critical of Stan Bowman and, and they probably won't, uh, <laughs> whatever he is gone is, is when you'll see uh, the fan base really get excited. But I think there is, there should be some sort of excitement right now because there is some sort of new direction in the sense that maybe they are bringing in a business guy or business person, whether it's externally or internally, but that person is also going to have a say in some sort of hockey decisions as far as who they bring in. So I think, Fans should be optimistic that there could be some sort of new direction, and and we are seeing Danny Wirtz get involved more and more uh, with the organization, and, and that could be a positive sign too where uh, you're seeing a branch from the ownership group have more of a say um, into the, the new direction of the franchise. So we'll see where it goes. All right, a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, and I spent some time on Thursday's episode of Lockdown Blackhawks talking about these. I liked your piece on Kirby Doc comparing how up until the season was paused, he had been outperforming Jack Hughes. And it got me into a conversation, um, not about Doc versus Hughes, but kind of took me back to the Kirby Doc versus Bowen Byram selection. I think there was a large consensus of all of us who became draft experts. As soon as the (laughs) Hawks got the number three pick overall in the lottery, we all knew everything about every prospect right away. But the consensus was that Byram would be the franchise defenseman that this organization sort of needed. And while Kirby Doc 
seems to have worked out, looks like he's going to be the kind of player they expect him to be, I still find myself sort of questioning, did they do what was best for the organization there? Uh, You know, he's NHL ready. He's good. There's no doubt. I think he's going to be a star. But they they had the opportunity to take a franchise defenseman there, and just because Byram didn't play this year doesn't mean that that potential of his won't be reached. Right. It's a good question. And I kind of think back to at the time they Henry Yokihari was still part of the mix. So they had an influx of, of defensive talent where, whether it's Ian Mitchell, Yokihari, Adam Boquist and Nicholas Bodan. And so if you bring, if you brought in a Bowen Byram, that's like a a fifth defenseman uh, into the equation and, and you don't really have replacements as, as, up front, and I know Dylan Strom and Alex DeBrinkett were kind of taking that mantle, but it wasn't like they were considered franchise-changing players. So uh, it was—it's funny you mentioned that, though, Jay, because I remember when we were interviewing Kirby Doc at the draft. Um, I, I turned around, and right next to the right next to Doc speaking was Bowen Byram, and I was kind of just imagining. I was like, well. It's crazy to think how how history could have changed if the Blackhawks did pick Bowen Byram and if Kirby Doc was uh, picked later on. But um, the fascinating thing about the 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 NHL draft that Kirby Doc was taken in is there were so many. It was such a top heavy draft where I remember doing mock drafts and it was like you could really pick any player in that slot and you make it make a strong case and Kirby doc was actually one of the names that I really wasn't paying closer attention to. And so you wondered whether that was part of, he was the most pro ready given his size and his strength and his ability. But also when he got brought into Chicago, I was like, man, I don't know if they really made a wrong decision here because this guy lives and breathes hockey. And that's something that they really value as an organization. The Blackhawks want those kind of guys that can set the tone and be like, be rink rats like Patrick Kane and Alex DeBrinkett and Dylan Strom. So uh, I don't I don't fault them at all um, what their thought process was ex- exactly in picking Kirby Doc, but I thought it was the right move when you look back at it. I know we've talked about this before too, and I, I want to now that we're you know a little bit separated from the season, we've got some room to breathe. How do you feel like Doc's development is going to affect the future of Dylan Strom? He's a guy who needs a new contract after this season. Uh, I think. The fact that he spent a lot of this year banged up, didn't have the sort of season he had last season, um, may help the Hawks a little bit and that they probably don't have to pay him as much as they maybe thought they were going to have to. But do you think Doc's uh, ascension, I guess you would say, has lessened their prior prioritization of Dylan Strom, or do you still think Strom is in the long-term plans here? Yeah, this is one of the things I, I wondered as soon as Kirby Doc was drafted because they had brought on Dylan Strom via trade and he like emerged as a point per game player in Chicago. So you figured, okay, Taves, Strom, those guys are locked in for good for the long term. And then you bring in a guy like Kirby Doc. And I don't know if it was ever a question of, okay, which which guy is is not going to be part of the mix. I think it was more of like, okay, how is this dynamic going to work? Is it going to be, you know, Jonathan Taves as your number one center, uh, Dylan Strom uh, for, for several years to come. Dylan Strom as your number two center, Kirby Doc as your number three center. And then as time goes on, Kirby Doc maybe eventually takes on that number one center role. Jonathan Taves slides to maybe a third line checking role as he ages and Dylan Strom stays in that second line spot. I don't know. I I still think the organization really values Dylan Strom. And I would be really surprised if he wasn't higher on their priority list because of the, the chemistry and the 
camaraderie has he has developed with Alex DeBrinkett and Patrick Kane, and I think that would not resonate well if you moved on with a guy like Dylan Strom. So uh, I still think that th- those three pieces are are core pieces of the of your center depth, and I don't see any of them really getting touched. It's just a matter of how you're gonna how you're gonna shuffle the deck and and order them in the lineup. Yeah, I agree with you, and, and I I've preached this forever. I think that when you look at the teams that have had success in the NHL over the last decade, decade plus, they've all been super, super deep down the middle at center. The Kings, the Bruins, the Penguins, all those teams that have won over and over again, the Hawks, of course, have always been pretty good at center. Uh, So, look, a great problem to have is you have got three potential number one centers. At worst, you have a number one and two number twos. That's a good place to be. And you've got some flexibility with Strom being able to play on the wing. And I said this on the podcast yesterday, if things go the way you think they're going to, Doc is 20, right? Or is he 19, 20? Not even 19. Yeah, Yeah, he's 19. Uh, Strom just turned 23. When those guys start to reach their primes, that's when Taves is going to fade out. Like you just said, then they switch. Doc becomes number one. Strom is two and Taves is number three. You let him do some defense and you've got the best third line center in hockey. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, a- absolutely. I, I think the challenge between Doc and Strom taking the mantle as the first and second line center is both of them are really not very good at, at faceoffs. And I don't know how much of that is should be an alarming concern going forward, but you you wonder why you know, Dylan Strom was moved to the wing earlier in the year. And it didn't help that the fact that he wasn't bringing value to the faceoff dot, even though he did get better as the season went on. And there was a stretch where he was really, he was winning above 50%. And that was on a line with Patrick Kane. So it coincided perfectly. But I think that's also why you want, you know, you have to wonder, you know, Jonathan Taves would obviously eventually be your, your perfect third line checking role years from now. But having a guy like Doc, and Strom hoping that they can take that next step in the face-off department. You're listening to Lockdown Blackhawks, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. My guest today is Charlie Romeliotis from NBC Sports Chicago. Last segment, we talked about the importance of centers. And a couple weeks ago, Jimmy Greenfield, formerly of the Tribune, posted a poll on his Twitter that has since been wiped, by the way. I think Jimmy wiped and restarted his Twitter I don't know if he had some nudes on there or something he didn't want people to find, but for whatever reason, Jimmy, you don't want to see Jimmy nude, trust me. Jimmy uh, wiped his Twitter, so the question was gone. But it was basically, okay, entering the dynasty, you only can pick Taves or Keith. And, man, before I voted on it, I I, I treated this like it was the biggest thing in the world. Like, I have to get this vote right. (laughs) I was, like, making notes. Like, I was up all night. Like, how am I going to click? And, and I took it really seriously. And at the time, I picked Duncan Keith. And my justification was he was kind of the cog for everything they did, right? Like, everything ran through Duncan Keith, the way the defense was made, the way that the, you know, the stretch outlet led passes sort of dictated the, the offense getting going, all those things. But then I thought, just thought back to what I've said for years and what I said last segment, the importance of centers. And if you take Jonathan Taves off that 2010 Hawks team, the centers are not good. <laughs> you know, it's like it's Dave Boland and and John Madden who are like you know ideal threes or fours, and then it's like Colin Frazier and and Patrick Sharp played some center that year, but he was never a truly full time center. So I I went on and mentally changed my vote 
to Jonathan Taves. I'm interested how you would vote on that poll if it was still if it was still around. Uh, Jay, I don't have kids, but it feels like a question of choose your favorite kid out of <laughs> That's here. That's why it was and so hard. I mean, <laughs> I, I honestly, and this is such a cop out, and I'm sorry, but I honestly don't feel like there is a wrong answer because you can make a case. Like, so the way I try to determine these is remove remove one from the equation, and how can you supplement that guy's that guy's production? And I remember we put out a poll question on our um, social media page about which player was most important of the dynasty. And I had mentioned that, you know, Duncan Keith, I wasn't really taking a side, but I mentioned that Duncan Keith was as important as ever uh, in the dynasty era, because if you remove him from the equation, it's like, that's a two time Norris trophy winner and a con Smythe trophy winner in the same year that they had won the con Smythe or the three Stanley cups. And Mm -hmm. Patrick Kane didn't win his heart trophies until after they stopped winning Stanley Cups. Not that he wasn't valuable back then because he was no question valuable, but that was like Duncan Keith was anchoring the the blue line. And if you take away, you know, my thought process was if you take away Duncan Keith from the blue line, that's a committee approach. Like you're not, no one player is going to step into his role. If you take away a Jonathan Taves or a Patrick Kane, it's like, okay, well, you still have Marion Hosa and you still have Patrick Sharp and you still have depth. So you can supplement that, uh, production somehow, but it's like it, it's such an impossible question because they don't win three Stanley Cups with any of those guys not part of the equation, right? So it's Jimmy really put us in a cruel situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really hard. It, it's such a great question because I've really been thinking about it. I, I think he posted like a week and a half ago, and I, I think every day since then I'm like, yeah, you know. I really got to think about that. It doesn't matter. I don't know. Why I, think it matters <laughs> I feel so much. like it's a question that it's like, what what question can I really rile up the fan base with and make them lose sleep? Well, and it, that it, was the question. It's and it's a perfect question too because there's two guys that are like equally beloved. You know, like it, it's not like oh, because people have soured on Seabrook because of the contract and because of the decline. And that's another thing I want to talk to you about, and we'll get to it in a second. Is Seabrook? Um, but man, that, that question just tortured me. It was, I don't know. I don't know what it was about it, but it was just two guys who were so very important. And the other thing that people forget about with Taves is not only was he incredibly productive, won a con Smythe in the playoffs, of course. Uh, but then also he's shutting down the other team's top line every year. He's out there against Kopitar and Bergeron and on and on and on. So not only is he producing offensively, he's also producing defensively. It's just his – I feel like because his offensive production has dipped a little bit over the recent years and because they haven't had a ton of success and because he's not a flashy player like Patrick Kane, I think some people have sort of lost they, – they've forgotten how important and how great Jonathan Taves was and, and really still is. Yeah, I wonder how much of those two down seasons he had really played. Like people started mentally, I don't want to say checking out on Taze, but feel like it's like, okay, well, maybe maybe that was it. Like he's past his prime now. And then he's had this resurgence over the last couple of years. But Jay, you mentioned that we were we were watching, obviously, the uh, the 2010 re-airs on NBC Sports Chicago. And I, I just thought to myself during that postseason, I was like, oh my God, Jonathan Taze was so good. In every aspect, on offense, he was more. He, he tied Dennis Savard in, in most points in a postseason. But I'm like, he's going up against the other team's top line 
on a nightly basis and he's still producing. And it, and so like, yeah, I, it, it's such a difficult question trying to choose one or the other because they are so equally important. But like Jonathan Taves in 2010 was like all time great Jonathan Taves in Blackhawks history when it comes to postseason runs. Yeah, there's no doubt. And a couple of years ago, actually many years ago, there was a uh, a story written. <sighs> Boy, I can't. I'm trying to remember who it was, but there was some sort of uh, article written about who would you start a franchise with, Jonathan Taves or Sidney Crosby. This was p- presented to NHL execs, and Taves won that. Yes, like that. Like I think if that happened now, the answer would be different. I think people would have said Crosby because of the continued production. But there was a time where Taves was considered the most valuable player in hockey and maybe he didn't win the MVP award of course but like when you look at everything he did everything he put together people at the top of organizations thought of him in that way that the fact that he was considered the guy in the league yes and whether you agree with it or not at the time the fact that he was part of that conversation made it seem like okay I mean this guy's an elite player and and it's you know you look back at it now and and Sidney Crosby ended up winning you know, back-to-back Stanley Cups and then Con Smythe and and whatever. And he was he obviously went through that time too, where he was injured and he was kind of out of sight, out of mind. So you wondered what his future held. But yes, at the time, Jonathan Taves and Sidney Crosby were like right there as far as top players. So um, it wasn't really until after, uh, like I feel like Patrice Bergeron in Boston is a really good comparison with Jonathan Taves, and. Patrice Bergeron is a guy that gets so much respect around the league and also the fan base. And I wonder, I, I like, I don't, I wonder why he's getting so much love and Jonathan Taves isn't still because like he, there's like, he's still producing at a point per game pace and Patrice Bergeron is still as a respectable player as any in the, in the, in the national hockey league. So I really do feel like it was those two years where Jonathan Taves production dipped off and, uh, I think one of the years he didn't make the all-star team either. And like people maybe just thought Taze was over the hill. And that now over these last couple of years, he's like, oh, hey, I'm producing at an offensive <laughs> career pace and I'm still doing it at – I'm still you know, producing at a high level on the defensive end of things. The problem is the Hawks aren't very good as a team and they're defensively um, inept, let's say. And so it – like you, you don't really get that attention anymore if you're if you're Taves. Yeah, that that's part of it because Patrick Kane, you can't deny the highlight the highlight real goals and the spectacular, uh, you know, point production and all those things. Those cannot be ignored. You see him on TV every night. You see him in highlight packages. You're not going to see Jonathan Taves, you know, back checking to break up a an odd man rush or anything like that. And the difference is, you I think you said Bergeron is that team is still winning, and the Blackhawks are not. Uh, the other thing too is Bergeron didn't have a equal or arguably better star with him, and I think a lot of people would look at Patrick Kane as the guy for the Blackhawks. Bergeron was the guy, and I think Marchand is ascended to that now. But when the Bruins were winning Stanley Cups and Pasternak too, right? But back when the two were being compared, Taves and and Bergeron, Bergeron didn't really have that. Yeah, that that is a good point because it it was. Patrick Kane was the offensive machine and Jonathan Taves was the two-way shutdown player. And, and back then it, you know, during the um, Stanley cup days in 2011 for Boston. And, th- and then they had their resurgence. It was really Patrice Bergeron and Sedano Chara as the two guys that were kind of the faces of the franchise. So um, yeah, it's a good point. 
All right, so the last thing I want to say is, and you know, I'm just going to make an observation, and I've made it before, <laughs> and maybe you'll agree, but you mentioned the 2010 replays you guys were doing, which is awesome. I, I just love that. Looking back on it without feeling stressed out about it was a different <laughs> way to, like, wow, these are really damn good hockey games. Um, and the other thing, just a little side note, I forgot how good the Canucks were. Like, those teams were stacked as hell. But what I'm saying is here, Brent Seabrook, if you've soured on Brent Seabrook, Go back and watch the cup runs of 2010, 2013, 2015, and watch how great Brent Seabrook was at every end of the ice. He, he's put together so many huge moments in his career. I know the contract is frustrating. I know the decline is frustrating. But what Brent Seabrook is going through is totally natural. A guy with that many miles, with that many minutes on him, with that size body who plays that style of hockey, the decline is natural. Don't be mad at him for signing a contract literally everyone on earth would have been like hell yes i'm signing this contract give me the closest pen and i will sign it in my blood if i have to yeah it's really it's really unfortunate that the newer generation of hawks fans that maybe didn't get into the team starting until you know 2013 14 15 are seeing um brent seabrook in maybe more of a negative light and it really does come down to attaching the contract to his name like even Jonathan Taves, we were just talking about him a few years ago. People were like, this doesn't look like a good contract because his production was tailing off. And so nowadays it's like if your contract is bad, you are a bad player. And that's that's not the case. Like Brent Seabrook, you know, if Brent Seabrook was making uh, significantly less money, like nobody would think Brent Seabrook is a bad player. Like he would still be a suitable third pairing defenseman who's up there in age and who has a lot of mileage on him and played – significant roles in all three Stanley cups and five conference finals and was part of the resurgence of the Blackhawks. So yeah, watching that 2010 team, you know, he's one of, he's one of the guys too. You, you look back and you're like this whole, this whole team was just so good. Like, like they were collectively such a good group and Brent Seabrook was such a significant part of that. And I hope fans don't lose sight of that as he uh, fades into the sunset eventually after his contract ends. All right, Charlie, thanks for taking some time today. Greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast. I like having you on because we just talk and record it. <laughs> it's basically it's basically just us having a conversation yeah. and, and our, our microphones just happen to be on. Well, I think that's what uh, people like, so I'm glad to have you on. Go uh, hit him straight, hit him long, and uh, have a good time golfing, man. Hopefully no news breaks <laughs> thanks, before Jay, you get home. It. I can't wait for news to break while I'm on the course. <laughs> <laughs> I'll text you, you if anything happens. Bye. <laughs> Great. All right. See ya. See ya. That was Charlie Romeliotis of NBC Sports Chicago. Follow him on Twitter at Charlie Romeliotis, R-O-U-M-E-L-I-O-T-I-S. Always love having him on the podcast. All right. That's going to do it for this week of Lockdown Blackhawks. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Very much appreciate it, as always, as I always tell you. Hey, and now that this episode of Lockdown Blackhawks is over, ask your smart speaker to listen to the latest episode of Locked On NHL. Have a great weekend. Supposed to have some decent weather. We'll talk to you on Talk Back Tuesday. That's right. The next show is Talk Back Tuesday. Lockdownblackhawks at gmail.com. 708-653-0572. Lots of questions rolling in already, but can always use more. It's been light the last few weeks, so try to get those questions in. Life, movies, hockey, whatever you want to talk about, send me a question. We'll call it an Ask Me Anything. All right, let's do that. We'll talk to you on Tuesday here on Lockdown Blackhawks. Have a great tremendous wonderful and safe weekend enjoy